Our God and Heavenly Father, we do seek you now. We ask that you would send your spirit to illuminate our hearts. We pray that just like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, whose hearts were warmed when they were in the presence of Jesus, that our hearts would be warmed too as we study your scriptures and learn more of him and learn more of what it means to follow him. And this we ask for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Our scripture lesson this morning is in Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. You'll find that on page 841 of your pew Bible. We saw last week that Jesus was rejected at Nazareth, and then he sent out his, sent out his 12 apostles uh, to carry the message of the kingdom of God forward into the villages and areas around Galilee. Now we learn of a very tragic situation, and that is the death of John the Baptist. So read with me Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. King Herod heard of it, that is, he heard of the disciples' ministry and Jesus' ministry, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And, she vowed to, and he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. I remember in the fifth grade, reading the book, Where the Red Fern Grows. You may remember this story. It's the story of a young boy in the Ozark Mountains of Arkansas. It's his desire to have two uh, hound dogs that he might hunt coons. And I remember in that story, him sort of describing some of the makeshift traps that he would make for raccoons. He would I'd dig a hole in the ground, put some piece of food in the bottom of it, and maybe something shiny that would attract the raccoons. 
And then he would put sharpened sticks on the edges of the hole so that when the raccoon stuck its, hole, its hand down in the hole to grab the piece of meat, when it went to pull its hand out, it, it couldn't get back out because of the jagged sticks. It would have to let go of the piece of meat in order to get its hand free so they could then go on its way. But being a, a stubborn animal and not wanting to let go of this particular piece of food, it would stay there for hours, long enough for the dogs to come running for it, holding on to this piece of meat and not letting it go, and in the process, not being free. In other words, there were these warring desires within the raccoon. I want to be free, but I want that piece of meat. And in a sense, you and I have warring desires within us as well. Everyone does. We see that here about Herod. His conflicting desires, wanting to protect John the Baptist, and yet wanting something else as well. There are warring desires even within the Christian. Paul the Apostle reminds us in Galatians chapter 5, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. You know what it's like to have conflicting desires within you. You want to obey God. You want to do what's right. You want to keep His Word and be faithful to Him. You know you shouldn't say those words to your spouse. And yet, you just can't hold your tongue. And they just blurt out and you wish you could put them back into your mouth, but you can't. You know you shouldn't take one more look. But you want so badly to take another look. You know that honesty is the best policy. But there seemed to be such a reward held out for you if you just tell a little white lie. You see, within every Christian, there are warring desires that compete. Desires that come from the Spirit of God. Desires that come within our own spiritual, our own uh, uh, fleshly and fallen sinful nature. Herod is no uh, stranger to warring desires either. We're told of that here. We're introduced to him in verse 14. King Herod heard of the ministry of Jesus and of his disciples. And there is some discussion among the people as to who Jesus is. Some say that he is Elijah. Others say that he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. There's a bit of fear and anxiety in Herod. He's worried. He's confused. He's thinking that Jesus is John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. He has previously executed John. And now it seems as though, at least in his mind, maybe John has come back and maybe there will be some kind of consequence for Herod because of that. And we see in Herod here not only a, a ruthless, sinful man who would kill a righteous man just because a girl danced. But we also see a man in great conflict as well. A man with a guilty conscience. You see, we're told in verse 18 that 
John the Baptist had been telling Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias, Herod Antipas' wife, was previously Herod Philip's wife. Herod Antipas of our story's brother. You see, this Herod had convinced Herodias to divorce Philip and he divorced his own wife so that the two of them could be joined together in marriage. And John proclaimed to them, what you have done is sinful. And yet, Herod seems to be captivated by John for some reason. Even though he doesn't like what's coming out of his mouth, we're told that he's perplexed. And yet he heard him gladly because he feared John. He knew he was a righteous and a holy man. And so within Herod Antipas, there's this great conflict, this war that's taking place. He's drawn to John. Maybe he sees in John the kind of man that he wishes he was. A righteous man, a holy man, a good man, a noble man. Maybe he sees in John someone who's finally able to stand up to me and tell me what's right and true. And so he's drawn something about John that captivates him. And yet at the same time, he's fearful. He's fearful that if he obeys what John says, maybe he'll lose something important. I mean, losing his wife, possibly losing respect and credibility. And I think that's the very thing that Mark wants to communicate, especially as we consider this event in the context of Jesus sending out his twelve. Jesus has sent out the twelve. He's told them to expect opposition. And one question on their mind, they must have wondered this as they went out, knowing that opposition would happen, knowing that there would be places in which their message would not be received, maybe places in which they would be run out of town. They must have wondered, what if we lose everything in following Jesus? And maybe there was a little bit of warring within their own soul. Maybe they didn't say it to their partner out of fear that, well, what, did, what would the other disciple think of me if I admitted this? But maybe there were thoughts within their own hearts. What if I lose everything here? They want to serve Jesus faithfully, but I could lose my own life. Just as Jesus would lose his own life too. And Mark sandwiches this particular account of the death of John the Baptist in between the sending out of the apostles. And we're told in verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. As if to say, now count the cost. You may lose everything. But you may gain everything too. I think we know this conflict within ourselves. If I, if I serve Jesus wholeheartedly, what will it cost me? Maybe it will cost me uh, some of the patterns of life that I'm used to and that are so comfortable to me. And I just don't want to give them up. Maybe it will cost me some sense of influence if I give up my own desires for what the church ought to be or what the family ought to be and I sacrifice them for the sake of peace. There's all kinds of things that we might give up in the name of serving Jesus. 
And there in this passage, I think we're told three things. One is a warning. Two is an encouragement. And three, a hope for the future. Let me mention this warning here that we see with Herod and Herodias and Salome, the daughter of Herodias. You know, everybody has a conscience, as I was talking about with the children. God put us put uh, within us a sense of right and wrong. It's what it means in part to be made in the image of God, that we know what is right. We are like computers in that sense that have come formatted from the factory. And we have some sense of right and wrong, but it's like we have a virus on our hard drive and and that sense of right and wrong has been distorted. It's meant to lead us to safety for Herod as he's heard John preach and been told it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. There ought to be red lights and sirens going off in his conscience. Herod, you can't do this. But instead, he suppresses his conscience and presses forward. And there's two things about this warning that we need to understand. One, the allurement of sinful desires. You remember Cain who hated his brother out of envy because God seemed to receive Abel's sacrifice better than he received Cain's. Remember what God told Cain? Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to master you. And sin will master us if we let it. And there are such allurements of sin in this particular passage that would seek to master us. Look at Herodias. We're told in verse 19, Herodias had a grudge against John and she wanted to put him to death. She wanted to kill him because John had been proclaiming that her marriage to Herod Antipas was not valid. And so she hatched a plan, this twisted purpose of revenge that she might kill him. Some people just can't let go of their anger and their bitterness. And here she would even employ her own daughter in her wicked scheme so that her daughter would even be implicated as well. What she's going to do is to use this audience of military figures, of noblemen, of leaders of Galilee as leverage to try to get Herod to do just what she wanted, which was to kill the man who had spoken ill of her, all because of revenge. How far are you willing to go to seek revenge? Sometimes we don't even know until the opportunity comes and the allurement of that particular sin begins to have its way with us. And then all of a sudden we realize just how far we're willing to go to seek revenge. Or what about Herodias' daughter, Salome? We're told here in verse 30, uh, 22, for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. Here she comes, a very young, beautiful, attractive woman, dancing very seductively before this banquet of, of drunken men. Why would she be willing to do such a thing? I think it's all for the affirmation. The affirmation that these men could give to her. The affirmation that her mother could even give to her. Oh, good job, Salome. Look what you've done. Sometimes that desire to be affirmed, that desire to, to have other people notice us, 
to have other people affirm us and say great things about us, to desire us, to be attracted to us for some reason. That allurement for sin has its way with us. And we find out what we're willing to do for the affirmation of others. And then finally, there's Herod himself. I think the first thing about Herod that we see is that in some ways, he's a waffler. We're told in verse 17, that it's Herod who sent and he seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. And so he's bound John the Baptist in prison. But he's done so, we're told in verse 20, actually to keep him safe from Herodias. And so here he is, he sort of takes the middle ground. I won't kill him, but I'll put him in prison. He'll be safe there, and then his blood will not be on my hands. And so here's Herod, a man who would give himself to the sin of self-protection, regardless of what it means, regardless of the injustice, all because of pragmatism, that he's looking out for himself, not looking out for what's right and what's good. Pleasing others to maintain a sense of equilibrium within his marriage. He would sacrifice what he wanted and what he knew to be good and true for the facade of gaining some kind of power within his own marriage. And I think just as an aside, there's, there's a warning, first of all, to women. And I think this is true from young girls all the way up. Be careful how you use your power to influence. Be very careful. Because you see, if sin has its way, then you will use your power to influence for destructive purposes, which is exactly what's taking place here. And as an aside for men, sometimes I think we need to be warned too of just how weak we can be to choose the middle ground rather than choosing what's right. Rather than giving in, we are called to stand and to stand firm for what's right and good and just. But you see, for each one of these people, there had to be a suppression of the conscience. The conscience must have been screaming out, this is not right, do not do this. And yet in order to go ahead with our sinful plans, we have to suppress the conscience even in the face of all the warring desires within us. You see, we end up hardening our hearts at times when we begin to consider the cost to repentance. What would it cost each one of them to repent and to turn the other way? It cost Herod his marriage. Likewise for Herodias. It would cost them their namesake in the community. Maybe Salome wouldn't have the same kind of affirmation. You see, sometimes when we consider what it would cost us to repent, we end up hardening our hearts, denying the conscience, and pursuing after the allurements of sin. But there's another warning here. It's not only the allurement of sinful desires, but it's also indecision. There's this great party that Herod throws for his birthday. During the midst of that party, Salome comes forward to dance. Everyone is intoxicated with her. Even Herod, and he makes this foolish, rash 
vow. Ask of me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. Now, how foolish of a promise was that? And what happens? He's blindsided and he's put to the test. Salome goes to her mother and says, what should I ask for? She responds, the head of John the Baptist. It's not at all what Herod was expecting. And he's blindsided by it. He's put to the test. We're told in verse 26, the king was exceedingly sorry. It's actually the same word spoken of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he is sweating drops of blood and no longer looking forward to what is ahead, but now uh, looking upon the cross and being fearful of what is ahead. And here is Herod exceedingly sorry at what is about to take place. But you see, he fails the test. Rather than, uh, rather than doing what is right, rather than throwing aside his foolish vow, he seems trapped. Immediately, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison, brought the head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Why? We're told because of his oaths and his guests did not want to break his word to her. Sometimes you can feel as though if you're not careful, sin will just carry you along. And before long you realize you've been indecisive about it in the past. And now it comes back to haunt you. Choose today. Choose today to serve Christ rather than to give yourselves even the slightest bit to the sin that so entangles us. Herod didn't make a decision. And what he found out is someone made the decision for him. He lacked courage in the face of others. And when we haven't made a commitment to live in obedience to Christ, then we can feel as though that indecisiveness now comes back to haunt us. You know what it's like when you're dealing with lust and all of a sudden things come on TV that surprise you and you're not ready to do battle with it. Or you hear your friends gossiping about others and you haven't decided in your own heart, I will not engage in that. And before long, you're drawn into it and you begin to speak about people in ways that you shouldn't. Or you haven't put your bitterness to rest. And so when the time comes, all those feelings are evoked and before long, you're acting on that bitterness. All because you've never made a decision prior. You've never chosen that you're going to stand for Christ and to serve Him, especially in the great test that's to come. Otherwise, we see a further progression in the sin and rebellion in our own life. And that was true for Herod. He not only killed John the Baptist, but later on we read in Luke chapter 23 that Jesus is sent to Herod, Herod Antipas, after his arrest. And you know what? Herod is intrigued by Jesus, just like he was intrigued by John. But in the end, he hands him over to be killed, just like he did with John. My friends, if we're indecisive about being obedient now, then later on we'll dig a deeper hole for ourselves 
just like Herod did. To follow Christ faithfully requires a sense of intentionality about our faith. What we need here is not only a warning that's given to us, but also a great encouragement. We're told of John in verse 18 that he had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Here's John, this lone voice in the wilderness, regardless of the cost to him, regardless of what it might uh, require of him in his ministry, and ultimately we require of him his life. John here is willing to have the courage to say what's right and true regardless of what comes upon him. And I think in Mark's writing to the Christians in Rome who are under the Neronian persecution at this particular time, as they are reading this, Mark would want them to understand too, look, there are great costs to be had in the Christian life. If you're going to follow Jesus, you may even have to pay the ultimate sacrifice, giving up your whole life just as John the Baptist did. And Jesus would as well. But he's wanting to write to them to encourage them to press on. Because you see, we need to sometimes see other people doing what we're called to do so that we are able to follow in behind them and do the very thing. So that we're inspired to press on, to serve Jesus at all costs. And Mark here puts this account of John the Baptist in this particular place. To encourage them, just as the disciples might have dealt with this question, what might, have, might, what might I end up losing when I'm serving Jesus? Well, you may lose your life, but in the end, you might gain everything. And John's an example of this faithful kind of witness. If we turn to the book of Hebrews, you remember from chapter 11, this hall of faith of all these people who by faith, by faith, by faith, we're told, held on to the promise. And yet they didn't quite receive it in this life, but they would receive it in the life to come. And after chapter 11, we read on into chapter 12. It speaks of this great cloud of witnesses that is cheering us on to say, keep pressing forward in your service to Jesus. Don't shrink back. Regardless of what the cost might be. You may remember from the 1992 Olympic Games. A sprinter by the name of Derek Redman. He ran the 400 meters. The first heat he ran the fastest time of any other runner. In the second heat he came in first. It was the semi-final heat to go to the finals. He started off quickly. It, the race looked very promising, but 175 yards from the finish line, he tore his hamstring and went down in pain. He managed to stay in his lane, and after a few seconds, he, he jumped up and literally hopped on one leg all the way around the track. And as he got to within 100 yards of the finish line, his father ran out from the stands and grabbed a hold of him, and the two of them walked together. And when they crossed the finish line, 65,000 people erupted in cheers. And my friends, when you and I cross the finish line, having faithfully served the Lord Jesus, John the Baptist and all the other saints of old will erupt in cheers 
and you will know the pleasure of serving your king faithfully. And he says, press on, be encouraged, because the one who dwells in John dwells in you too. The spirit of the almighty God. And if he can enable John to continue to press forward, to have great courage, even in the midst of warring desires within us, even in the midst of shrinking back, wondering what's it going to cost me? That same spirit's at work in me and at work in you. And he will enable us to press on. Well, finally, let me mention this, not only a warning and an encouragement, but a hope. We're told in verse 29, when John's disciples heard of his death, they came and they took his body and they laid it in a tomb. Here we see his disciples mourning over his death. They, they lost their master. They do what is the custom. They take his body and they laid it in a tomb. Why? Because they had hope for the resurrection. See, it's not just John's body who would be laid in a tomb. It's Jesus' body who would be laid in a tomb as well. And this passage is a, you might say, a foreshadowing of what's about to happen to Jesus. That Jesus would be turned over to the Romans. That he would be executed just like John the Baptist. But unlike John, he would rise on the third day. So that John could rise. And so that you and I could rise too. You see, it may cost us much. But the hope that we have is a hope for eternal life. It's not a hope for the treasures in this particular life. And what we're called in is to believe in Jesus now. So that in the midst of those warring desires, we continue to press on. Herod believed in the supernatural. We're told in verse 16 that um, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. He believed that the resurrection was possible. But that's not the same thing as believing in Jesus. When we say the Apostles' Creed on some Sunday mornings, we say, I believe in God. Our hope is in Him. We don't just believe that God exists. We believe in God. Our trust and our confidence is that Jesus has been raised from the dead. That though He went into the tomb, He came out of the tomb. And He is the firstborn of all who will rise from the dead. And so you and I have a great hope for the future as well. We live on that hope. So that we can put to death our sinful thoughts and impulses now that would tell us to shrink back. No longer have to fear losing what we have because we'll gain everything in Jesus. Sure, you remember the story of Jim Elliott and the four other missionaries who went down to Ecuador. It was their intention to witness the gospel of Christ to the Wadoni people there in Ecuador. And they made contact with the Indians there, the tribal people. And because of that contact, they were greatly encouraged. And so they sought to build a base camp. And when they went in, they did not realize that one of the Indians had actually betrayed them. And ten of the warriors came and killed Jim Elliott and his other four companions. 
Now that was in 1956. In 1949, October 28th, Jim Elliott wrote in his diary those famous words. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You and I need to have the same posture of John the Baptist and that great cloud of witnesses that we would not fear to give up what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose, which is eternal life in Jesus. And so he says, press forward. Be forewarned of the sinister nature of sin. Have a great encouragement from Christ and from all those who had followed in behind him. And look forward to the reward that you have in glory. That even when those warring desires come, you and I could choose to serve Jesus faithfully. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we do look to you. We pray for the strength necessary to fulfill what you have called us to, and that is to serve you at all costs. Help us in that, Lord. We pray that we would be prepared when sin's temptations would come our way so that regardless of what might come and face us, we would have the strength because we have decidedly made an effort to trust in Jesus. And may he be our trust so that we would be encouraged and hope for the future and serve him all of our days. For Christ's sake and glory. Amen.